But then we read from, from Romans 7, and it seems to say something very different, where Paul says the law brought death. Many professing Christians today, because of this confusion, just say, well, the moral law, meaning the moral law is summarized in the Ten Commandments, well, that has passed away, that that's no longer for the New Testament church. And they often cite Romans 6.14, where Paul says, you are not under the law, but under grace. And yet we know on the other side, there are still those who would argue for keeping the law of God, but their approach is no different than that of the Pharisees. They think that a rigid, begrudging adherence to the law is a way to earn favor with God. And so how do we come to a right understanding of the law of God? And and I believe the key to it is looking at some of the facets or uses of God's law that we find. And um, I'll be, be using the confession sort of as a jumping off point, but I'll be referring to the Westminster Larger Catechism as well because it really expands on those sections that, that we just read. And it's only by understanding all these uses of God's law and how they work together, it's only by understanding those that we can rightly understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and our need for him and how to live for him. And so what are these uses of, of the law that we find? And, and the first we find is that it reveals our sin. In Romans 3.20, Paul says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. He said the same thing in the passage that we just read, Romans 7, Without the law I would not have known sin. And so the law reveals our sin, and this is what the um, confessions and the catechism says, the larger catechism says, the moral law is of use to all men to inform them of the sinful pollution of their nature, heart, and lives, to humble them in a sense of their sin and misery. And so the law shows us our sin, it reveals our sin to us, and as as we think about that, we, we need to ask, how does the Bible, first and foremost, define sin? Well, sin in the Bible is defined as an offense against God and His law. John wrote, 1 John 3, 4, sin is transgression of the law. It's a breaking of God's law. It's an offense against Him. And that means to have a a right view of sin, we need to have an accurate understanding of God's law. If sin is transgression of the law, then we must understand who God is and what He requires in His law. And to a degree, we can say, if we don't know the law, we won't know that we have sinned. That's what, that's what Paul said. And that means that an ignorance of the law of God will lead to a weak view of sin. We see it in our culture now, but it can also happen in the church, and it does happen in the church. And so one of these purposes or uses of God's law is to give us a proper sense of our sin, to convict, convict us, to show us our guilt before the Lord. But it doesn't end there. It 
yes, reveals our sin, but you can almost view this as the other side of the coin, but it secondly it reveals God's holiness. Because when we look at the lawgiver behind the Ten Commandments, we not only see our sin, but we see a holy God. And again, the larger catechism says that the moral law is of use to all men to inform them of the holy nature and will of God. In other words, we can look in the scriptures at the different kinds of things that the Lord requires and forbids, and that tells us the kind of God that He is. If you want a, an example of the difference between the pagan idols that we find in the Bible and the one living and true God, simply observe the difference, the things that they command. The pagan God Molech in the Bible was thought to demand child sacrifice. Well, the one living and true God commands the upholding of life. In Psalm 19, which speaks of, did I say 119 or 19? Psalm 19, which speaks of God's law. If you read that, it applies God's attributes of perfection, purity, righteousness, and truth. It applies those to his law. And so it reveals God's holy character. A righteous, holy God stands behind his law. And so we put those first two uses together. It can, it can be pretty devastating because it reminds us that we have offended a holy, all-powerful God. That we have not done the things that he commanded and we have done those things which he forbids. We have broken not the law of man, but the law of God. And that's what David says in, in Psalm 51 when he confesses his sin. And keep in mind, he sinned against many people. But how does he confess his sin? He says to God, against you, you only have I sinned. Sin is transgression of the law, and through that law comes the knowledge that we have sinned against a holy God. But thirdly, it reveals our inability. In Romans 7.14, Paul said, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. It shows our inability to keep it. And again, that's what the confession and the larger catechism both articulate. Uh, the, the catechism asks, what is the use of the moral law to all men? And part of the answer is to convince them of their disability to keep it. In Matthew 5, Jesus outlined what true obedience looked like, expounding upon the law. And he ended that exposition by saying, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's an impossible standard. We can't meet it. And that can be even more devastating when we are reminded how Jesus pointed out that keeping the law is not just about external observance, but it's about your heart. It's about your thoughts. It's about your attitudes. That the Lord demands perfection in all of those areas. Jesus shows the devastating depth of the commandments of God. 
And he says, you might not have ever killed someone, but if you are angry with your brother, you are a murderer. And that depth reminds us that we cannot meet that standard. There is an inability. We can't reach the standard God commands. There is an inability to keep it. Now, those first three might be a little bit devastating, but we have to be devastated first. Because fourthly, the purpose of the law is it leads us to Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.24 says, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Section 6 of the Confession says that the law gives us a clearer sight of the need we have of Christ and the perfection of his obedience. Now, if I had just ended the sermon after the first three uses of the law, that would be pretty devastating. Um, the, the law shows you that you've sinned. The law shows you you've sinned against the holy God. The, the law shows you that you can't keep it. It kind of would leave us devastated. It would leave us in a place of hopelessness. But we need to ask, like, what, why does God do this? Does, does he want us in that place? where we acknowledge that we can, we can do nothing, that we can't pass the exam before us? And the answer is yes. He wants us to be at the end of ourselves so that we look outside of ourselves for salvation. He wants us to seek Him for salvation. God is not just dangling just out of our reach, something that's hard but attainable. It's something we can't attain. That perfection can only be attained by another. And so we see in that severity and even the devastation of, of the law of God our need to look beyond ourselves to someone who can and did keep the law perfect. And even in that devastation, we see the mercy and the love of God. Because by using the law to show us what we can't do, He leads us to Himself. It causes us to cry out and say, You have to provide someone who kept the law for me because I can't keep it. And that's the aim. The law is given like a tutor an instructor to lead us to Jesus Christ that we might be justified by faith in Him. And I think that's a good reminder. We talked a bit last week about legalism, legalism versus antinomianism. And I think maybe in the, uh, in the Reformed Church we uh, have a uh, tendency to maybe drift towards the danger of legalism more. Sort of that rigid, begrudging um, adherence to the law of God, seeking, thinking somehow that we can earn favor. And I think this is a reminder to us of how damaging that is to us, how damaging it can be to those around us. Uh, for those of us who are fathers, how damaging it can be to our families if we administer the law in our home 
as something that can be attained and not as something that shows our children and our, our spouse the, the need of Christ and the provision of, of his sacrifice. Now, there is one final facet of the law that is underlined by the confession, and that is having convicted us of our sin, leading us to Jesus Christ, it then a rule for us to live by. Romans chapter 8. Paul writes, and, and I want you to listen carefully what he says. He said, for God has done, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Jesus affirmed this same thing, Matthew 5, 19. He said, whoever does and teaches the commandments of God will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And this is what that final section of the confession says, Neither are the aforementioned uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it. The Spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that freefully and cheerfully, which is the will of God revealed in the law, requires to be done. So our relationship with God does not depend on our keeping of the law. Having been delivered from the curse of the law by Jesus Christ, been given His Holy Spirit, we are now called to keep that law. And, and, and there is, I think, a freedom that comes in, in living in light of this, remembering that Jesus kept the law for us. He freed us from its wrath and its curse. And now in light of that great fact, in light of our new nature, in light of our union with Jesus and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, keep the law for His sake. Not trying to earn His favor. You already have His favor. But we can keep the law out of thankfulness and love through the power of His Spirit. See, we're not called to keep the law to be saved, but because we are saved. Not as a means of gaining eternal life, but because He has given us eternal life. And so His law shows us our sin and His holiness. It shows us our inability to keep it, and in doing so, it leads us to the Savior Jesus. And having been united to Him by faith, indwelt by His Holy Spirit, we are called to keep the law in love through the power of His Spirit. And I think it's helpful to keep these five facets, uses of God's law in view and to help us avoid those, those errors of antinomianism and legalism. And we will avoid those because we see Christ and His gospel more clearly. Amen. Let's, let's pray. <laughs> our Father and our God, we, we thank you for your law. And Lord, forgive us for not proclaiming enough with the psalmist, Oh, how I love your law.
It is my study all the day. Lord, we pray that you might implant in us a, a deep love for the law. And as we look at the law, we would look to the one who kept the law for us. The one who bore your wrath and curse for our breaking of that law to free us that we might be conformed into your image. Lord, we pray these things might be for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.